You want to do a podcast? Is that, is that what we're doing? That might be what we're here for. Man, these always sneak up on me. Totally. I should one of these days learn to do some research or something. They're only friendly for as long as you're cooperating. It was probably just a whole bunch of Benny Hill music going on when they started talking about patch management. The only thing worse than not having a network map is having a network map that is wrong. Today is February 8th, 2015, and this is episode 105 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Hey, good evening, Mr. Bell. How are you, sir? I am excellent. How are you? I'm good. I'm loving this early spring weather we're having in Atlanta today. It's beautiful. It is awesome. I actually went outside, and like uh, it was nice. Absolutely. So that's a good thing. And for those of you who are in crap weather, I'm sorry. Yep. Move south. <laughs> or not. Anyway. Uh, you know, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever makes you happy. So uh, just a reminder, the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employers. So, um, so yeah, jumping in, t- I, I kind of reordered a little bit. Uh, the big news in the past week, obviously, is Anthem. And uh, we have a story here from the Huffington Post, which I think may be the first time we have ever had a Huffington Post story. <laughs> but what, whatever. If you disagree yeah. with it, start your own podcast, right? Um, so, <laughs> ouch. I'm just, I'm just going to bite my tongue. Yeah. Just... <sighs> so, so anyhow, uh, the, the, Again, this is uh, this is all of the rage right now. Apparently, Anthem uh, was breached by some as yet unknown attackers, uh, possibly China. We're hearing. Wait, not North Korea? I'm so confused. Well, uh, what can I say? So that clearly, because it was a big hack, it must be a nation state. It couldn't possibly have been anything else. True, that's very true. Yeah, and that was a bit of sarcasm. If you could tell. <laughs> So, so the story here is that a uh, an Anthem system administrator was apparently poking around or doing something and uh, saw his own security credentials logged into uh, a system and uh, uh, doing some kind of job and uh, recognized that that was not appropriate and that set off a, apparently a chain of investigation and. The results are that apparently 80 million records, or the records of 80 million customers, uh, possibly have been breached. So there's still not a ton of detail, but apparently what we do know is that uh, Anthem is saying that there were uh, five employee credentials, or the credentials of five employees, apparently including the one who who found this, were, uh, were stolen. And it's further down in this story, uh, it says that there apparently has been some evidence of some kind of activity happening as far back as December 10th. Which, coincidentally, is also the date that the website anthemfacts.com was registered. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, 
I'm as, I love a good conspiracy theory as much as anybody. Brian Krebs did a little bit of investigation on that and said that he found that it was actually being used to host a, uh, a, a site about mental health. Well, so. I had heard, that's interesting, I had heard that this was currently, it was originally being used that Anthem had rebranded from WellPoint. Yes, that's right. And it was part of the rebrand. And that the Google cache for it looked like it. So I am being a little facetious throwing it out here. I think it's been disproven that this was some sort of – they knew about it since the 10th, December 10th, and they stood up the site. And you know it didn't announce till now. However, it's been floating around out there. A lot of people were talking about it on Twitter, so I did want to at least quickly throw it out there and say I'm pretty sure that is just one of those odd coincidences that is not actually a conspiracy theory. Yeah, and there there is an odd an oddity in this particular story that I hadn't seen in other stories, and I may not obviously I haven't read everything, but um, I'll just paraphrase or I'll read it. Actually, those earlier attempts, including the one on December tenth, were deflected by the company's network security defenses. Bin said. So that leads me to think that they're looking through logs and saw some other probes or attempted infiltrations that for whatever reason failed right right so and you know it kind of makes me wonder were were those inside the network were they on the perimeter of the network you know what what exactly did they see obviously that we don't have that kind of detail here but i think it you know to me it says that apparently the data existed Mm -hmm. and it just wasn't it wasn't being acted on or, or monitored or recognized as a problem at the time. Well, it's interesting, too, that uh, unlike a lot of companies, this was actually self-identified, that yes. their own DBA stumbled upon this. Now, to be fair or to be harsh about it, I would call this a bit of a lucky find that you just happen to have an attentive DBA noticing something out of the ordinary, not as such any sort of security system Right, flagging this activity and alerting and triggering an internal investigation. So they kind of got lucky here. And to your point, uh, although, again, we've both read the book The Signal of the Noise, and it very clearly makes the, the point that when you look at things in retrospect, it looks very obvious. But when you're going through it, it is much less obvious. So it's easy for us to you know, armchair quarterback them. Why didn't they notice? But... This is something we've seen over and over and over again in companies. We, as an industry, are doing a terrible job of spotting active infiltrations when they're inside the environment, even though we have the data once we go looking for it. Uh, that's a that's a really good point. But you know, again, I think it is. I think the signal and the noise, the, the lesson from that book, is very material. It, it's easy to go back in retrospect and see. And connect the dots, right? And it, but it's really it can be difficult at the time, and that is where I think that's the opportunity ahead of us. How do we how do we get better at that? Um, you know, there's some other interesting things. Um, you know, for instance, the you know there's an obvious question of you know we apparently it, uh, Anthem is acting as if this data has been breached and. Uh, um, what what's not entirely clear is, uh, did that data actually get exfiltrated? Because you know, I, the context is is interesting here, right? The 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 person saw some activity going on, 
right? So which which means they were actively doing something in in the in the network. Um, you know, I, I I guess the question I have is they, they're saying there there are eighty million customers impacted. You know, are there more customers that weren't yet impacted? Um, that's you know that that's kind of where my head is going, you know, what, what else could they have done or what, you know, what were, what more well, were they likely to have been doing? Uh, so what I heard and, and is that the particular database had up to 80 million customer records. Uh, okay. And so what my understanding is, is they're not sure how many of those records were actually accessed and exfiltrated. And obviously there was some sort of running process going on on that database that was noted by the DBA. So what was that process? Don't know. They haven't told us. We don't know that what exactly they grabbed. But however, if they had already grabbed the entire 80 million records, it's likely they would not have been actively accessing that database any further. So I think it's a fair supposition to say they didn't get all the records. But what did they get? We don't know. Yeah, exactly. And I guess you almost have to assume they got them all until you know otherwise. And maybe that's maybe that's the point here. Maybe that's the the they're taking a conservative position. You know, in addition to them self, uh, you know, self identifying this issue, they also didn't really sit on the information for very long. Um, they it was detected on January twenty seventh, and I think it was um, it was disclosed publicly on what was that the fourth of February. So that's um, just just a little over a week. Yeah, I think so. I'll, I'll confirm as we're talking here. So, um, so you know, I, I think um, you know. Obviously, it's not a great situation for for anybody, especially uh, you know. I'm I am a uh, I'm one of the people probably who had their their data stolen. So, not terribly happy about that. The, you know, the other big bit of of uh, controversy about this is that you know I, I think there's been a supposition at least that the data was not encrypted. And so there's a whole lot of noise going on, going on right now about how horrible it is for, uh, you know, for Anthem to not have encrypted their data. But, you know, the reality is I'm not sure that that's a, that's a reasonable so situation. So let's talk through that for just a moment. Absolutely. And we just talked about this in the last show or was it the one previous. So let's say it was completely encrypted. Whoever the attacker was had valid DBA credentials. So that encryption would have happily decrypted for that user transparently. So I'm not sure that that is what we're talking about here that would have done anything. Having that stuff encrypted in a data-at-rest environment uh, would have you know, helped them if somebody had come and physically stolen the drives that that data lived on. But if I'm a valid administrator, obviously I've got to work with that data. So obviously there is some sort of encryption decryption mechanism built into that environment. Uh, So perhaps that's not the real concern. Maybe the real concern is what could they have done to better secure those privileged accounts? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I, I guess where I was, where my mind was going too is, I'm not sure that it, we have enough information to say that it wasn't encrypted for the very ah. reason that you mentioned, right? Because if it was encrypted, uh, and you know, and they they obviously had you know, valid administrator credentials, 
uh, it's not a logical leap to think that they would be able to, you know, either post hoc decrypted or decrypted as part of, uh, you know, whatever exfiltration they were doing. So, yeah, I, I think that that criticism is probably those who don't understand all the mechanisms, how they work together and thinking of encryption as a panacea to these sorts of problems. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And, and you know, I will, you, you kind of touched on it too. This definitely highlights the point that we've got to do a much better job about securing our administrative credentials. And there are tools out there. Uh, there, there are vendors out there that that's all they do. So, I mean, it, th- there are solutions to this. It is just something that I don't, I don't know that it's high up the food chain for a lot of folks to worry about right now. But we do you see a lot of abuse of privilege accounts and service accounts. Uh, you know, and there are tools anywhere from, I don't know, vaulting passwords uh, so that they change all the time. There are, there, there are solutions like watching where administrators are coming from and looking for out-of-the-ordinary sources for those logins, out-of-the-ordinary times for those logins. There are different approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we try not to talk about specific technology vendors on this show, uh, but I do want to at least bring up some techniques that I've seen. Um, you know, I, if if this is some of your real sensitive information, you probably need to be doing some research around how better can you secure access to that data. Yeah, definitely. You know, we we got into a bit of debate over the weekend about attribution on Twitter. And, you know, one of the points I kept making is I don't care who's attacking me. I care what they're attacking. Right. (laughs) Right. And I want to defend my crown jewels, not, you know, care about, oh, I'm only going to defend it if it's the nation state. Yeah. You know, I I do think it is important and and maybe, you know, maybe conflated in, in the argument somehow is having an understanding of the ways in which different people attack you. Right. So you know, being able, being cognizant that you know, there are different, very different attack vectors. I agree though, you know, it doesn't matter to me, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm Anthem, it doesn't matter to me if it was, you know, a nation state or if it was, you know, organized crime. All I know is you know, I lost a whole bunch of data. Yeah, very true. So, um, and it it is important to understand for us as security people, but also I think even more fundamentally, uh, this is something that I'm actually considering a, a talk about at at uh, besides Atlanta for our IT architects to have an understanding of attack techniques because you know I really think that there's often just a complete misunderstanding of of um, how how secure things can, are and and uh, the kinds of attacks that that um, kind of our basic building blocks of IT these days can be used uh, against us. Indeed, and it's a it's a tough call, you know, to get to get folks to think that way, especially when they're trying to build out stuff quickly for business. But if we don't shift that mindset and start thinking about security and failure of security controls early when we're building this stuff, we're, we're just going to keep seeing these over and over and over again. And I don't think it's a panacea to just go, well, know how attackers work and you can build it in. But again, we're just trying to raise the bar here and trying 
to architect enough things to make it difficult and also make it noisy and make enough odd things happen that hopefully we've got enough monitoring systems to catch it because I don't think we're going to keep them out all the time. What we're trying to do is, you know, like having a front door with a lock on it. You want to make somebody slow down, make noise, and give you time to react in theory. Uh, yep. But it's, it's not easy. A lot of folks are just trying to, you know, get the packets through the network. Right. So um, moving on to our next story. Uh, this one comes from Tech World, and the title is Dating Site Topface Pays Hacker Who Stole 20 Million Credentials. So this is another case where uh, essentially a company has capitulated and paid, paid. It's not really a ransom. So the story here is that apparently Topface is a Russian dating site, apparently a quite popular one. Um, and some of their data showed up on an online marketplace. And a U.S.-based security company called Easy Security or... Easy Solutions, uh, found the data and contacted Topface. Topface then turned around and contacted the person selling it and said, hey, why don't you talk to us rather than selling this to somebody else? And so that apparently happened. Topface paid some undisclosed amount of money and the attacker withdrew the uh, the information that was for sale. What's really interesting here is that apparently it was primarily email addresses that were uh, that were stolen. Uh, they're saying that they didn't get any passwords. Now I don't know if that means they didn't get any clear text passwords or passwords of any kind. And it also said that most of these people, I think 95%, they said, are logging in with um, social media accounts, so like uh, you know Twitter and AP, uh, Facebook through their uh, OAuth, I, th- I guess. So. Um, uh, in the end, it seems like they're trying to cast this as the attacker was kind of a uh, uh, a bug bounty or you know a bug hunter. So uh, I, this is uh, this is one that I really hadn't seen treated like this before, and you know I, I guess it worked out for them. But man, I you know the systemic problems that are created when people do stuff like this is. Not good. Yeah, we kind of went through this phase, I think, back, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago when people were doing, um, let's just say, unauthorized security audits. Right. <laughs> Especially against websites and then contacting those companies. Um, I think that it's a tough call when you're in the situation. Uh, as we've seen with CryptoLocker and CryptoWall and that sort of thing. A lot of individuals and companies are choosing to pay, but I think uh, we're probably in agreement that that is not a precedent you want to set, and it's going to make it harder for everybody else. But, you know, it's a difficult situation when they're in it. Yeah, and I I guess, you know, one of the – it's we've often said it's it's – better to think about these things through ahead of time. So one of the, you know, to me, one of the things this points out is it, it probably behooves everyone to think through, you know, are, are there circumstances where you would pay or are you just never going to pay? And you know, think, just think through that, you know, the, 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 some, maybe some of the different high level categories. And, uh, you know, so you're not, you're not having to figure that out when you're under the gun. 
Yeah, I would agree 100%. Uh, of course, that's a really awkward conversation to have with your leadership. <laughs> yes, indeed. But but if you, if you can, uh, we would recommend it. That's right. <laughs> All right, so moving on to our next story. This one is from Security Week, and the title is Disconnected Security Increases Risk. Um, you know, this one started off in a, this article started off in a way that, that, um, I really liked, but then it kind of went weird. So, um, okay. <laughs> so, so the, I guess the, the gist of it is that, um, you know, we, we talk about the, we security people talk about the, the challenges of human nature as it pertains to security primarily in the context of users, you know, users doing dumb things like clicking on dumb links and opening dumb emails and doing dumb things generally. But the point is that um, as IT people, we are also prone to making dumb mistakes. And so he goes through some of the dumb mistakes like, um, you know, letting ourselves become overloaded with um, events out of our uh, some of our monitoring systems, then shutting them off, and you know things of that nature, and and you know not not working enough to um, have the technology kind of complement us, and and rather you know just see it as a you know as a as an an unbearable workload, and turn it off, and this kind of fits the you know the the narrative we see a lot where we buy with with all you know well intentions security technology that then atrophies because we don't have we don't we don't have the commitment to properly tune it um and so it's you know it becomes a a liability and eventually it becomes ignored yep so um you know this is this is actually another one of the talks that I'm uh, I'm thinking about for uh, for B sides, and and that's you know we we humans are are very susceptible to what are called economic irrationalities, and uh, and you know I think this kind of points out at a at a very narrow in a very narrow way some of those things, but I think that, that you know that that problem goes much more deeply than this article does, so you know. Stay tuned. Well, I, you know, I think there's a couple things that occur to me on this is that you have to know why you're purchasing some bit of technology or security control or whatnot. And you need to understand your motivation behind it. And so what I think happens a lot is people buy it and they forget what it was that motivated that original purchase. And some other conflicting requirement or need starts to come into play. And often that conflicting requirement or need sort of wins because security often is in the way. And so I'll give you an example. We buy a firewall, we turn on the IPS and other cool features, and it starts introducing latency into the environment. So we turn that off. All right. Well, why did we buy that functionality to begin with in the first place? Oh, well, we had these needs we were trying to do, and we had this risk we were trying to mitigate, and we couldn't afford this risk tolerance without it. Okay. So now you're giving yourself two choices, either re-accept the risk or add latency and disruption of 
services on the environment, which of course is not going to fly. I would argue, wait, why did we not size the firewall properly to begin with? Right. In terms of making sure that we can achieve both choices here, right? Both needs. Another one I see all the time is technology is purchased, but there isn't a plan for who's going to administer and run that technology long-term. And it may be a pet project of somebody. Uh, it's up and running for a little while, then that person leaves or they get retasked, and then the, that technology starts to atrophy. I think we do a vast service to ourselves by not staffing appropriately to handle the care and feeding of these technologies and also holistically see how they match up with other things and having an architectural view from a security architect view of how all these different pieces fit together. And I think it's, and I've said this many times, it can create a false sense of security. For instance, you've got an IPS out there, but you know, you're using it in an offline mode or out of line mode, and it's a, it's monitoring only, and nobody's actually really updating uh, the the various uh, settings, and nobody's really looking at the alerts too much, and yet somebody in an executive suite says, "Oh, well, we've got an IPS out there," and they don't know all the caveats behind that. Right. And a lot of times we see that companies have the right technology, they're just not running it properly. Right. And then the technology gets a bad name. So, it is. This is not trivial. This is not easy. This is, you know, this also goes into we do have a shortage of of, of security folks, and I mean that both at a security technology uh, engineering layer, folks who can run IPSs and firewalls and SIMs and all that kind of jazz, and at an architecture and you know holistic security layer, we we don't have a lot of those folks, but it is a it is a problem, and and I think when we buy technologies and don't think about the amount of time it takes to run and care and feed for these uh, technologies, we're actually doing ourselves more harm than if we had just not bought the technology at all. I completely agree with that. But at the same time, though, you know, uh, in my personal experience, and I'm sure other, others as well, is vendors tend not to help that problem out, right? Oh, that's so true. You know, yeah, the, they absolutely downplay the amount of time it, 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 it takes to run them. You know, and and I think that's I think that honestly is a is a big a big challenge. You know, because it's some especially the more expensive the solution, the t- generally the higher up the chain, the uh, you know the decisions are being made, and the farther from the operational groups the uh, you know the that decision maker is. And you know, if you've got a vendor saying, "Look, this uh, you know this this farm of next generation firewalls just runs itself." You know that that the the, the headcount doesn't get factored into the equation, and that, and you know, by the way, I don't think this is necessarily unique to security. You know, when I when I ran IT, I saw the same thing on business applications. You know, when you buy when you go off and buy Oracle financials, you know, they're not very upfront about how many people you need. You need to buy a busload of programmers. That 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 doesn't appear anywhere in the discussion. I would say I think it's incumbent upon us when we're looking to purchase these technologies as part of the POC to really evaluate what sort of at least estimate on our own side what it's going to take to run an organization. And ideally, uh, we can talk to folks who are running it out there already today, which, by the way, this is a challenge when you're looking at bleeding edge technology, typically that pool of knowledge and previous experience doesn't exist. So that's something to be said for 
looking at more mature technology that has been around for a while, you can usually talk to folks and figure out, you know, what does it really take in production? There's usually folks talking about it online, that sort of thing. That's, I think that's a really important point. Uh, whenever you're in, you're going off on some new endeavor like this to, to go out and find some other organizations that have deployed it and find out what their experience has been and, and what, what kind of resources specifically does it take to, to keep it up to date and to manage it? Because I, I think that's such a critical and often overlooked part of the equation when, when we're building these security programs that um, we, we need to, we need to get better there. So anyhow, Moving on to our next story, this is just a brief update on Sony. So uh, in Sony's most recent earnings announcement, uh, they've effectively said that the cost of their breach uh, is expected to cost $35 million, which when you consider the totality of everything that happened, that seems like a bargain. Yeah, it's not bad. And I wonder how much of that will be covered by their insurance. I wouldn't imagine uh, more than a little bit. So, although, you know, I, I do wonder what kind of exemptions they might have for, uh, you know, for um, acts of terrorism or, or what have you. So, uh, you know, the, the more, more to come there, but um, it's, it's a, it's an interesting number. And I, I guess I just heard too, that the, uh, the co-chair person, um, forget her name. Uh, resigned. So, huh. um, I suspect uh, it's probably hard when all of your email gets leaked and people see that you're maybe unkind. <laughs> yeah, that didn't didn't do her any any help there. Yep. Uh, anyway, so moving on to our next story. And this one comes from CSO, and the title is Malicious Advertisements on Major Sites Compromised Many Computers. We've talked about this kind of thing quite a lot, but it keeps happening, and it's happening with with increased frequency. And, um, you know, I think this just reiterates the point that, you know, the Internet's hostile place. It's not that pornography sites are hostile or where sites are hostile, you know, the internet generally is kind of a dangerous place. And um, so basically what's happening here is legitimate ad networks are, are, um, are being attacked. And, and I use the word attacked in quotes by, um, you know, by some attackers who are effectively buying legitimate ad space and then um, you know, the redirecting, the, the the unwitting visitors to um, you know, ultimately to an exploit kit, and you know the most of the ad networks have some pretty good diligence they do when they vet ads to make sure this doesn't happen, but you know the the the, the bad guys are pretty good at at um, circumventing that. You know they'll set up an algorithm so that only the t- every tenth person gets redirected or um, you know, does, it doesn't start happening for several days after the ad starts running or things like that. Wh- one thing that's not really clear to me, though, is whether these ads are, um, you know, the, the malicious code is being 
presented in the ad or if it relies on the person actually clicking on the ad. So I've heard both. I've heard primarily that it is malicious in the iframe of the ad is the one that I typically see out there. Okay. So it's merely visiting the site that's presenting the malicious ad. That's not great. No, no, it's not good. <laughs> not good. Uh, especially we saw recently with Flash being used as a mechanism for ex- ex- uh, exploitation. Uh, you know, and typically I'd say we'll use a ad blocker. Well, one of the most popular ad blockers on the planet, Adblock Plus, uh, basically uh, it became very widely known in the last week that they take money to whitelist certain advertisers. They, they sold out. Is what you're saying. And, um, yeah. And that's kind of frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that, you know, hurts you in, in terms of using that as a defense here. Now, there are other ones out there, but Adblock Plus is one of the best known and assumed to be one of the best supported in terms of, you know, doing a good job of finding and blocking ads. But um, now you're in a situation where if somebody is able to co-opt one of these white-listed advertising campaigns even the ad block plus will not help you yeah so so um you know obviously this is not a good good thing and we all need to figure out how how to uh prevent it because most of us allow some forms of web browsing in our in our employers and you know again the the problem here is that almost no matter how narrow you let your employee you know, the, the the kinds of sites your you let your employees visit you know, it's almost assured that you're going to allow something that could could be a problem. Right now, there's a couple of I think there's a couple of important considerations that you know, most of the time, in in every case that I'm familiar with, you know, ultimately the malicious code is coming from another domain, right? And so you have an opportunity there with web filtering. Um, to to block that, and we've talked about it in the past. One of the easiest ways to do that is to block uncategorized sites, which tend to be new. But even that, you know, the the more sophisticated uh, criminals out there know how to how to get around that. They can they can work to get those sites, at least for some period of time, categorized with uh, you know with something benign. Um, so another another one, which is kind of draconian, is um, you know, either either a, a pure whitelist or something like NoScript. Yep, but NoScript is a pain in the ass to run. Oh yeah, fair. Oh yeah, that's, but yes, that's why I call the draconian. Absolutely, but um, you know, it, it, it is a pain in the ass. But so is you know, so is CryptoLocker and you know, and cleaning off uh, malware from hundreds or thousands of of workstations. So, and by yeah, cleaning, I mean wrong. rebuilding. You're not wrong. So, um, you know, just, uh, I, I think, especially in the context of what we talked about, right? If you've got people, if you've got administrators, and, and uh, this is going back into a philosophical point, right? I see so often organizations who rule their general user population with an iron fist. And, you know, you can't you can't go to most websites, you don't have administrative rights and and on and on and on, right? And then uh, the IT people 
are granted a lot of latitude. You know, you have administrator rights, you uh, have a more lenient web filtering, you know, web, web filtering setup and stuff like that. And these are the people who also have administrator rights. I am guilty of this problem. <laughs> so, well, I'm, you know, I'm not familiar with really any companies that don't do that. So, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's a, a, a you know, particular, I'm not singling anybody out. Let's just say that. No, uh, no, no. I, I, it's a common thing. And, and I agree with you because, uh, I, yeah, we, I'm seeing it myself in my own, my own life. Where's the, where's the risk, right? What's. Uh, anyway, um, you know, I, I think in times gone by, we may have had, and maybe it was right, maybe it was wrong, a sense that the average IT person would do a better job of staying away from um, risky things, risky activities. Um, but now I think, uh, you know, especially in the, like this, right, the story right here kind of points out that it, it's it's almost impossible for anybody to avoid unless you have some kind of a control in place. So. Well, and you thought it out properly, right? You know, for instance, one thing that, that I'm a big fan of that we don't talk about it much is, hey, for your IT folks, give them both a admin account and a non-admin account. Uh, one thing Windows doesn't do well that Linux does very well is this concept of sudo, where you're not running as root all the time, but you can easily invoke something as a root command if you need to. And... You know, in Windows, I think 99% of the time, we don't need to be running as admin. Uh, but occasionally, the reason why these IT folks do is because they do need to load random crap. And, you know, I'm a, I work as a security architect, so my build on my desktop is very different than the vast majority of the organization. So, yeah, you know, the IT guys find, say, here, you know, you're, you know what you're doing. You can improve it yourself. You know the risk. And But, you know, if I want to to architect it properly, I probably would have my normal everyday account, which is non-administrative, and then also the ability to log in as admin and load programs and change things and bounce back to non-admin. Yeah, I, I think I think more more and more there's a recognition that you have to minimally do that, but even that is I think problematic. My I guess my where I'm where I'm at is that even if you do that, you still have to put in my mind bumpers around. What people can do, right? I, okay, fine. You need admin rights, but what are you going to do? What What else are you going to do to make sure that they don't hose themselves? Yeah, that's true. So. I, I I think it's a good point, and you know maybe that in of itself is a is a you know a, a business opportunity to you know build products that are technical controls around keeping the admins from doing silly things. <laughs> that's right. Uh, you know, and I think as time goes on, just to be uh, you know, be philosophical for a second. I I really think that this is an an area where IT security is going to be maturing in the near future. I hope you're right. So, uh, because we're you know we're going to keep seeing things like Anthem. You know, I'm not saying that that's what happened at Anthem, but we've seen a whole bunch of other cases. Um, and you know, I think we're going to keep seeing it. So. Anyhow, moving on to our next and last story, which comes from CSO also, and the title is CrowdStrike demonstrates how attackers wiped the data from Sony machines at, or from the machines at Sony. And uh, boy, I went into this article all excited that I was going to learn how 
Sony's computers were wiped, and then I find out that they're going to have a webinar in two weeks. So basically, we're giving them a free ad right now. Yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, the reason I the reason I uh, I included this is not because I'm uh, going to go watch their webinar. I thought there were some some interesting discussion points in here, um, and, and so basically, they're the author of the story is interviewing somebody from CrowdStrike about what happened at Sony and how can you avoid that. And, you know, they, they pointed out some important things, which kind of goes back to the conversation we had over the, over the weekend on Twitter. And, you know, one of their, I would say one of the fundamental points is that most attackers nowadays are using malware. And so, Looking for malware specifically is not all that, um, not all that sexy, I guess, as a as a defensive tactic. What you really want to do is look at kind of the end to end tactics that are used, which kind of goes back to what I was saying. I think it's just another way of describing the the concept of understanding how attackers are attacking. Right and and uh, you're figuring out uh, how that how that happens how are how are these attackers doing it and you know I don't think generally there's a huge amount of variance between them I mean I've seen a bunch right and Bob has seen even more and we compare notes and um, you know there's there's a lot of what I would say very well very well worn paths in uh, in in this space. So, um, so that's uh, you know that, I think that's an important point. They do talk about the concept of assuming that your network is breached, and I really like that. The more I think about it, the more I like it. And, and there was a discussion on another podcast about, well, isn't that really defeatist? And you know how 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 horrible is it that? And should we just you know take our ball and go home? And that's not the point at all. It's a it's a thought exercise. You know, if you if you sit down and say, okay, I am going to assume that there is somebody inside my network. How do I find them? That's the point. Okay, I got all this technology crap. I got all this monitoring crap. And I need to go find them. I know they're there. How do I find them? And that's the, that's the point. And I think that is a, a, a really valuable thing for each of us to consider. And and that is the number one takeaway from me for me for from this article. So, yeah, I can't disagree uh, with any of that. I've I very much agree with that. I I often say you know to various organizations if you're not actively working an investigation, you're probably missing a breach. Absolutely. And yeah, it's it's not defeatist. It's reality. It is. To think that your defenses are adequate would fly in the face of all the evidence we've seen in the last five to ten years. Well, and exactly, and I think the I think the further point is to stop taking solace that you in that your you know the the detective things that you have in place are not flashing and and buzzing. You know, take a step back and say, okay. I know that somebody's in here, right? And it's not triggering my my alerts. And how do I go find them? 
is that is that mining my data is that you know getting a getting a data scientist is that you know there, there's an infinite number of of possibilities uh, to to go do this but it's changing the mindset it's it's at least for some period of time entering a different mindset of saying okay you know i'm going to take a step back from this pure defense kind of role and say okay they're in there they're in here how do i go find them with the tools that i have and that you know maybe there aren't anybody in there and that's great hopefully not um but i think when you play that out you're going to find you know one you might find something bad and that would be good um and two you'll probably find opportunities to improve your operations and your visibility so that's why i think it's valuable yeah i think so too and it can be something that can be frustrating to your organization and your leadership to think about it that way. So I would say be careful how you communicate this and nuance it. But, uh, yeah, I think that you've got to assume that there's likely some stuff going on that uh, you're missing. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, so that was the show. Yeehaw. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, and just a reminder, uh, B-Sides Atlanta, for the folks in the Atlanta area or would like to travel to our first city, is coming up in March, March 14th. It's a Saturday. Uh, I think Jerry and I are both submitting talks. Uh, don't know if they'll be accepted or not, but we're certainly uh, going to submit, and I'll be attending either way. So uh, yep. that will likely be our next appearance at a security con. So come see us. Say hello. Absolutely, and um, it's it's unknown yet whether or not they will let me smash fruit Gallagher style. I, I don't know. Whoa. Well, I think if you label them as APTs and you're smashing APTs. No, 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 no. I got it all planned out. They're going to be oh. named vulnerabilities. <laughs> Poodle, shell shock, ghost, heart bleed. That's awesome. We're going at it. Uh, are you going to have different uh, different hammers that are labeled as different nation states? Oh, I like it. I hadn't thought of that. That's a great idea. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I was just thinking of the, you know, the Cybermatic 5000. You know, and we didn't talk about this in Anthem right away, by the way, but things are already flowing around that, you know, it must be China. Um once again, just for the record, a lot of this stuff is not that tough for random people to do, guys. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, but again, oh boy, I'm gonna I'm gonna disparage Mandy, and I don't want to do that. So maybe, maybe <laughs> I'll just cut it off. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, nothing nothing about Mandy or anything else. Just saying that. Um, I have yet to see anything that is attributed to a nation state that couldn't be done by smart, small group of people. Yeah. And I, you know, I think here's one of the, and this is the, this is the philosophy section I of the take, podcast. Let me, let me, let me nuance that statement. I take it back. Okay. With the exception of something like Stuxnet, which was targeted at very specific rare technology in terms of the industrial controls. Right. But when we're talking about, in general, Windows, Linux-type attacks, that is not out of the realm of smart individuals. Yeah. What, one, of the, one of the 
significant challenges we have is the secrecy or the confidentiality with which all of this these investigations happen under. It's really rare that we get enough information to actually make our own informed judgment, right? So True. we're kind of we're kind of stuck saying or you know understanding that you know I think in this particular case there it was reported that there were two unknown um uh, pieces of unknown malware or or malware that is not publicly for sale or I don't remember exactly how it was phrased in in one of the reports I read um you know th- those are um you know it's it's those kinds of details we really don't have access to generally you know they kind of dribble out and they're always you know that they're always uh you know attributed to a f- source familiar with the investigation and then you get you know a PR person come out and say oh we never said that and you don't know what the heck uh is you know is is real and and what's not so um but i think fundamentally i agree with you that it's naive to think that the kinds of attacks we're seeing you know whether it was sony or um, you know, Anthem with the caveat that we don't fully understand what the heck happened at Anthem, Anthem yet. Um, you know, the, these are not things that are out of the grasp of many kind of armchair attackers who, who have time and determination. Yes, so. I would agree. And, you know, when it comes down to zero days and that kind of stuff, I know plenty of people who develop zero days on their own time. And they're not nation states, folks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not that difficult. I mean, yeah, it's not exactly. It's look. It is a rare and obscure arcane skill, but it's not something that's out of the grasp of sharp people, right? You know, I, it's not, I, I, go ahead. I guess the one thing I will say, put possibly a difference. Possibly this goes in the other direction. Is you know what's the motivation? You know, when when you think about it from the perspective of of a traditional crime you know you always look for the for the motivation you know you, you have the means motive and opportunity and so i think what we're saying is that the means and the opportunity are available to a great many people not just nation states but i guess the question is you know are there is there a significant intersection of people who have a motive to do that, you know, because it, it's, even though it's accessible, it's within, it's, you know, f- conceptually within the reach of people who are not nation states, are they, are they generally going to be interested in, in expending the effort to do that? Uh, if there's a lot of money to be made, sure. Right. Right. And we know of very large, vast criminal organizations out of Eastern Europe and Russia that happily do this stuff for a living. And so I guess the question is, um, you know, is this, if it does happen, is it, does it portend that there is a, um, you know, an, an economy for these kinds of targeted attacks done kind of on the, on a commercial um, private sector side for, you know, for a price? And I, because I kind of think that says, in my mind at least, if it isn't originated by a nation state, 
that's probably the next most logical conclusion, right? Right. But anyhow, well, I mean, we're we're totally speculating. So. Yeah, but it's an important speculation because what I'm trying to say is don't believe instantly that when people say, well, it must have been an Asian state. I, I disagree with that statement. I I, right. I don't think that's true. Yeah, no, always. In the vast majority of cases. Right, right. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think we have to consider consider the alternatives and because, you know, if Especially if you if that tells you or if, if that in makes some kind of um, a, a a change in how you view your response or what you, you what your obligations are to protect your data, I think that's the you know that's where it gets dangerous because otherwise it's just talk, right? But if it if it starts to influence how you act, I think that's where it gets it gets more dangerous. So. Anyhow, good discussion. Indeed. Um, oh, and, and uh, by the way, there was a um, an interesting discussion. Dave Itell was on uh, the Risky Business podcast, and he he was uh, he was talking about um, North Korea and, and and whatnot. He had a he had an interesting take. I would uh, I would encourage. I wanna, I, I'm not going to go through it because it was kind of a long. Um, a long discussion, but uh, if if you have the time and interest, go go listen to that. It was the the episode that was released last week. So, um, and with that, uh, there was one other thing I wanted to mention that I'm just wrapping up a book that I have really enjoyed. It has taken me forever and a day to read, and it is. Uh, Want to get the t- the exact title right here? The title is "Measuring and Managing Information Risk: A Fair Approach." So FAIR is the uh, Factor Analysis of Information Risk. It's a, it's a quantitative approach to risk assessments or uh, you know, measuring risk and, and uh, whatnot in a, in a quantitative way, i.e. putting dollar signs to it. It's really interesting. Um, it's a very, very long book. Kind of uh, makes you think uh, pretty deeply about this. So... Um, give it a if you're interested. Give it a read. It's good. It's a good read. All right, sounds good. All right. Well, that is uh, the show for this week. We hope you have enjoyed it. And um, if you have any questions or ideas, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. You can find links to all the stories we've talked about tonight on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter. At Lurg, and you can follow me on Twitter at Malicious Link. And with that, we will talk again next week. Take care, everybody. Take care. Bye bye. Nice. Oh, wow. I like it. Let's do some more of that. Bye bye. Bye bye now. Bye bye. 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 Bye bye.